Hi, this is Mark Bittman. Welcome to Food. As always, you can reach us at food at markbittman.com. We've heard from quite a few of you lately, and we're happy about that. Also visit us at markbittman.com or bitmanproject.com. That's the Bitman Project, our now three times weekly newsletter, mostly. Check it out. Subscribe if you can. Please subscribe to the podcast. Rate it. Say nice things about it, etc. wherever you get your podcasts. Well, before we get started, I do want to mention that we have an interactive course called How to Eat Less Meat that you should check out if you want to eat less meat. It's filled with great advice, easy recipes. It's not no meat, it's less meat, so have no fear. The link is in today's show notes, and there's a discount right now for 25% off. And to get that 25% off, use the code NEWYEAR at checkout. That's how to eat less meat by me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. 
Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include Dynamic Sky Panorama Glass Roof, Front Row Massaging Seats, you know you want that, Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When I started out in the food world, let's say 1980, it was much more homogeneous. I mean, not obviously not the world of cooking, but the world of cookbook writing, the world of known chefs and so on was, um, I wouldn't say mostly men. I would say that aspect was, wasn't dominated so much by men, but it was dominated by white people and it was dominated by mostly French or French-American or sort of this weird continental kind of cooking. If you were to do a Japanese or a Iranian or a Chilean recipe, you were out there. You were doing something different. That's changed, obviously. Much has changed since then, but that's changed a great deal, although many things have not. So that's a that's a conversation. and And we had that conversation sort of with Jacques Pepin a few months back, and we'll continue to have talks about this subject, how things have changed, how they're different and not different now, and, and where they're going. One thing I can say with certainty, though, is that today's food world is much more heterogeneous and much more interesting than it was 40 years ago. And the new generation of food writers boasts some of the brightest, most thoughtful, and interested recipe developers, writers, food people in general that we've seen in a long time. Today's guest is one of those people. His name is Eric Kim, and he is a New York Times staff writer and essayist and the recent author of the cookbook, Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home. It was an instant Times bestseller, and a big part of what makes Eric's book stand out is his special relationship with his mom, Jean, which we talk about some in the show. Eric Grew up in Atlanta. He was the son of Gene and Key, Korean immigrants. He wrote the book with Gene, as I said. And in one interview, Eric said, if people think about what Korean-American means, I see a graphic where Korean is the Gene part and American is the Eric part. This is an interesting story about becoming American, living in America, 
the kind of thing many of our families have have gone through, but in a in a newer 21st century way. The book is full of family stories that are funny and poignant. And it's a new and kind of different kind of cookbook that we've seen more of lately. The recipes are really fun, developed with a lot of care and and super delicious. They're not stereotypical in any way. They're creative and interesting. They're, let's say, this is a phrase you're going to hear me use more than once, I think. They're authentic without being traditional, or they're authentic in a traditional way, but they're not strictly traditional. Kate fell in love with the book first, and so we reached out to Eric to come on the show. I started cooking from it. We've really had fun with it, and the interview's terrific. I hope that Eric had as much fun with it as we did. He's an ambitious, kind, wonderful, lovely guy. And for the record, I was nowhere near as smart as he is when I was starting out. (laughs) So here we go. I just have to gush for a second because your book, Korean American, came out this year and it's got a very prominent spot on my shelf. And Mm -hmm. I'm pretty picky about cookbooks because there's a lot of them. You grew up with them. And I love your book so much. But to say all the things that I love about it would take too long. Thank you so much. I feel like I went through so many new experiences this year that it's like overwhelming for anyone. And I'm now like processing it and because it's finally the end of the year and I get to like sort of slow down. And so that feels really good. Thank you for those words. When I, when we started writing about food, me and my friends, there was this stuff called immigrant cuisine. I'm using air quotes. And um, I mean, of course there still is, but what's funny is that immigrant cuisine is was my grandparents cuisine when my grandparents because they were immigrants and then my parents were like again air quotes american and so i grew up eating american food and thought well immigrant cuisine that's like persian and japanese and korean and like that and now there's this whole sort of like fuck you i'm an american i mean i'm a korean american i'm an american kind of genre of like, I grew up here. So this is not like, I'm not pretending that I went and lived in Korea for two years and did all the regional stuff and da da da. This is, this is our food. I feel like Korean American was my attempt to define that. And I like fumble through it and eventually arrive at something. But I, I think also, this is how I see it. I don't know if it's entirely true. There were certainly Korean Americans before me, but I, I sort of saw this like onslaught of like new cookbooks in that way. The explanation for it is, I don't know, maybe that the children of those immigrants just finally grew up this generation so and became writers. And so like, it's sort of like we're like, maybe like waiting for those people to just, I don't know, become old enough to to write a book. And um, and so there there is this like specific generation of kids who are writing the books and that feels really nice. I certainly don't feel alone, you know, in this, in this endeavor. And I, I don't know, I was really inspired by my current colleague, Priya Krishna. She, she put out Indianish and I remember reading it and feeling so inspired and liberated. And, and another thing is all of us have gone through the same thing, which is the negative part, which is a little bit of criticism from our own communities. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I just like didn't know that that would happen. And when it first happened to me, it was after my very first Times piece. 
and I called her and Priya and I were like barely friends then, but we were like acquaintances and she said, welcome to the club. And then it started a chain reaction of tweets. Nick Sharma posted something about that. Um, Samin Nasrat did as well. I don't know. We, we've all been through it. And it's just nice to know that we're all like, we all share in that experience, the beauty of it, but also the the hardships. <laughs> right. You're not authentic enough. Right. I think that's the main criticism of the book, actually, um, or at least the negative Amazon reviews. They, they always say the same thing. They, they're like, kimchi sandwiches with the cut the crust cut off <laughs> i was expecting more authentic korean food that's <laughs> like oh man it's like whatever anyway there is a part in the book that you talk about the myth of authenticity and i totally know what you mean uh, but i just it's like who do the people who are making these criticisms what makes them more qualified than anyone else i guess i just don't really understand who the like the holy priestess of authenticity is and I've had a whole year to think about this. And I really have psychologized that reader, which is something I like to do with, with human beings so I can like understand them. But I view it as this scarcity mindset. And I, I really like understand where they come from. It's imagine growing up your whole life and not seeing yourself on the page or the screen. And then finally, so, something does come come across the page and it's not what you think represents you and your cuisine or your family and your mom doesn't do it like that. And there is a feeling of like um, protection, safeguarding a little bit and gatekeeping. Yeah. Right now, my um, gochujang caramel cookies are kind of like on the internet. And, you know, I've seen one or two comments from people who are like, oh, great. Now people are going to find out, like learn about gochujang. And I'm like, I think that's a good thing. I mean, especially if the money goes into the pockets of Koreans who are selling this gochujang and Anyway, it's 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 an interesting thing, uh, and I really think you're on, either on one side or the other. And I think the book helped me realize that I'm on the side of authenticity is a sham. Well, or there's many different authentics. Yeah, it's not just yeah. one authentic. Yeah, my colleague Yolande Kamalafe said it very elegantly in in her video for Jollof Rice, wonderful video on NYT cooking. She kind of said. You have to add to someone. You have to add a, an object, like authentic to whom? Authentic to me, authentic, authentic to a Korean American, authentic to a fourth generation Hawaiian Korean lady I met the other month, um, and which sparked this whole column about inheriting uh, foods that you're kind of like distant from. You know, it's interesting. And, and also the joy of like cooking that food so that you can feel close again. I think that's really beautiful. You wrote the book with your mom who's Jean, who sounds amazing. I'm curious, and I don't even, I didn't even think about this, but what does your mom think about all the authenticity and what does the older generation think about it? I think for the most part, they're more accepting than people realize. Like, I mean, my mom's an exception in her own way, but she, throughout the book, was sort of a nice North Star. She was like, Eric, like I'm telling you, it's okay. I think it's fine. She was like, stop worrying about those critics. And I really was paralyzed by these critics early on in the book process to the point where my second story for the Times, it was a Korean piece and I got shingles. <laughs> I always like to tell that story because it's the level of distress that I had to go through in order to learn and I think to to find the confidence. But my mom... She's the one who was constantly telling me to go with the more exciting, tasty version. 
we wanted to talk about cooking and writing and stuff with your mom, which is something I really regret that I didn't do with my grandmother. But anyway, so you, during COVID, you moved home to Atlanta to work on the book and you wrote, I wanted to write down my mom's recipes, but as I got deeper and deeper into the project, I came to the conclusion that my recipes are an evolution of her recipes. And the way I cook now is and will be forever influenced by the way she cooks. Interesting that we're, we seem to be having the same conversation or a nice thread though. So your mom, Jean, is clearly a terrific cook. And we were wondering if you could give us an example of a sort of classic Jean dish and then maybe how it's evolved in your hands. I feel like the kimchi fried rice in the book is a good example. One thing that's great about putting out a cookbook is all these people read it and read into it and tell you back what you've done. And you're like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, that was on purpose. And (laughs) you start forgetting that you did it. (laughs) Or or just people make you sound way smarter than you intended. And anyway, and then, um, but there's a kimchi fried rice recipe. And kimchi fried rice is sort of my prodigal son meal, in addition to the uh, Argentine empanadas. As a combo, they're great. And they're what I look forward to every Christmas. It's like the my mom's thing that she makes. And also, before writing the cookbook, the first time I ever wrote about my family was this essay I wrote for Fufu That was my first time trying that form of writing or memoir writing about family and food. And it was about coming out to my parents over, you know, that kimchi fried rice and the way it's sort of always been our centrifugal force, like the, the thing that is always on the stove when I'm home because it's really easy to cook, but it's also really easy to eat. And it's really um, just like it tastes good cold and hot and it's perfect. And it has spam and a lot of like, you know, kim and it's very simple. It's very sweet because of the onion and the way my mom sometimes uses butter and maybe even a pinch of sugar sometimes. Anyway, when I came to that recipe, I just like didn't want to write that one again. So I I was in the kitchen trying to come up with my own version. And that's, you know how that is when you're trying to force a recipe. And But what came out was really interesting. And I took all of the lessons that I learned from my mom. Like, for instance, she taught me, one of the most important things she taught me that year was blooming your gochugaru in fat. So, you know, that red pepper powder, the Korean one that you use for kimchi, gochugaru, is like so fragrant so flavorful it's not really for heat i don't think i use it for flavor and so does my mom and the way to expand the flavor is to bloom it in some fat and so that kimchi fried rice starts with i think it starts with butter maybe and and some gochugaru and and that permeates the dish and it's entirely vegetarian on accident and i like it because it tastes like fire and there's a korean word for it pulmat, and it's like fire taste and and that flavor comes from just the the high heat. And I think that recipe kind of showcased me honoring the things that my mom does, but also trying to attempt a new version after a lifetime of her kind of essential fried rice, you know? And um, there's even like a cheesy essay before called Nest. And it's about like, I don't know, it's heavy handed, but because the right the rice has like a like a little nest of the seaweed <laughs> and egg yolk but it actually tastes good like there's a reason for that it's like a good eating experience cuz i love the egg yolk that's like the best part but you know i don't know since then i've done like a sheet pan kimchi fried rice i've done like a, other kinds of dishes and 
it's fun to see the the progression of your your cooking and i think it starts with my mom's cooking you write about assuming i'm pronouncing it right son mat yeah which is which means hand taste in english and in a way it's signature it's one of your signatures and it means cooking by instinct and taste feel that's the opposite of how most people or most americans anyway cook or it's certainly the opposite of way people who come to cooking as a new thing who don't grow up with cooking cook but what was it about when you were learning how to cook how did this come about mm, you know i love that word cuz i think it really explains well what i'm trying to get across with the recipes in this book which is that there's this quality it's like very unknowable quality about my mom's food that i think i i didn't appreciate when i was growing up i i guess i did but i it wasn't until later i realized how special it was which is that her food was special and some adults can't cook <laughs> and that's something you don't know as a kid you go over to someone's house and someone's mom makes you tries to make you breakfast and i don't know when you're a kid you're not thinking like wow this this woman her omelet is not as good as my mom's but um but you know as an adult i realized that her food was special and i think it has to do with the way you season your food and a part of me even before i started cooking professionally i, I feel like i knew that that was something that i i maybe had and and it's probably something i learned from her but this notion of people taking a, a bite of your food and that first look in their face and they're like whoa surprise and like they're like surprised or they're delighted or they they like smack their lips or there's something we said for like very gentle accumulating flavors that like build up over time in a dish but i also really like you know when you when you have like one opportunity it kind of reminds me of that show taste i think it was called taste nigel lawson was one of the hosts and i forgot who the other ones were but um it was a, it was like a competition show where everyone had to cook and your 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 palate was just this tiny spoon tasting spoon and i love that idea because i feel like that's the way i i think about my recipes and and my reputation and i like i like when that first bite is really impactful there are recipes that can help a reader arrive at like just the standard like status quo and like it if it like works for everyone but it can never like quite reach this for anyone and so i'm always we're always trying to calibrate like the balance between those two things it's like how do you translate hand taste it's like really hard i don't know like i was cooking someone's recipe recently and it didn't come out that great but i respected the recipe because i knew that what was behind the recipe was probably years of experience and like mm. the way that person seasons it every little like part and the heat levels of the whatever and so i'm really fascinated by the translation of this kind of thing because translating hand taste is very difficult i think and this book was definitely the hardest thing i've ever done <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute with more from eric kim Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. Less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car 
include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats. You know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I mean, recipe writing is hard because if you ever try to follow your own recipes, it's actually not not all that easy. (laughs) And um, really what you're trying to do is teach people how to cook by some kind of example. And it takes, it takes some time. So yeah, how, what do you assume? What do you not assume? How, what's people's palates like and blah, 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 all of that. I love thinking about that kind of stuff because it's, um, I mean, not just because I do it every day, but it's, I really, it, it made me really appreciate the recipe as a document and as a cultural artifact, you know, these recipes in the book are obviously super important to me, but I also wrote them two or three years ago before I started this job. And I just feel like every year I, I get so much better, not just as a cook, but also as a recipe developer. And do you feel like that, Mark? Like, do you ever go back to your old recipes and think, wow, I'm, I'm way better now? Or, or sometimes there's that moment where you're like, wow, I overthink things today. I well, need to like, <laughs> there's, an evo- there's an evolution. I mean, a, yeah, evolution. you know, a recipe that's 20 years old is not a contemporary recipe. So if you wrote it 20 years ago, I mean, it's not going to happen in your case for a while. But if you look at stuff that you wrote 20 or 30 or even longer ago, it just, it doesn't, you're like, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way now. That's mm-hmm. not right. You but change. it was right then. Right. You know, sometimes I look at old recipes and I'm like, I think back then people knew more, so you had to explain less. And there's something, my my, my goal for 2023 is actually to try to write like shorter recipes because I've really gone maximalist somehow over the year. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by the recipe that is very concise. And because sometimes when you over index on the information, you can overwhelm the reader. And I don't know, it's it's constant but it's a constant juggling act. And well, with that said, I did make your stuffing and it was very good. <laughs> I liked it. it was um, you know, it really inspired me to like stay minimal. And it's always a lesson that I think about. It's like, I don't know, you really need to let the ingredients shine, you know. It's, you don't need that many things. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we tend to think that the more ingredients, the tastier it will be, or at least a lot of people think that way. And it just doesn't need to be the case. Yeah, it's not true. Yeah. It's, that's what I love learning every day. I'm, I'm testing something and I know that if I pull out a couple ingredients, everything's going to shine a little more. And it's very exciting. That kind of lesson, many people already know in their lives, but it really was expounded for me in Italy this year. I went to Bologna and had some I don't know, just like that first meal was pasta, but I could taste the three or four ingredients and that like in-season asparagus. And I was just like, damn, this is so good. Now, how do I replicate it with like crappy asparagus from my, <laughs> like, you know, grocery You don't. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And, and that's fun too, using really bad ingredients to like make something good so that, you know, I, I actually <laughs> love shopping in my neighborhood because I know that this is like the quality that most people are used to. And I love developing recipes in my mom's 
at home in Atlanta in the suburbs because it's like this is what people are finding and yeah because sometimes you're in an echo chamber when you're when you're in New York or Brooklyn and it's sort of this fancy fantas- fantastical uh, farmer's market experience but that's just like not real life for a lot of people yeah we try I try consciously try to do both I mean I do yeah. live in a fantasy land when it comes to food but then I shop at stop and shop or walmart or (laughs) h mart sometimes or whatever h mart is my fantasy land (laughs) it is my personal fantasy yeah my personal fantasy land living near an h mart is just the greatest thing yeah h mart's one of those things where the more space they have the cooler it gets and so i love visiting the jersey one or i love going to i don't know i just love going back home to atlanta because you forget what what's possible when there's like all that space and just the bounty of prepared foods and 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 ingredients and it's really wonderful. Yeah, they have this whole section in my in my H Mart in my hometown where they pop rice for like these huge like rice cakes and I'm just like, who the hell is buying this? Wow, why, why is this stand here? It's like such a takes up so much real estate, but it takes up a whole quarter of the grocery store but the grocery store is huge and then there's this this lady selling her own tenjang i think and i'm like is this food grade like or is this like you know usda whatever legally i don't know probably isn't but like delicious i'm sure (laughs) yeah focus on the latter yeah that's cool i don't know I, i like the the what space can afford you and it makes me cynical about my new york apartment which this is as big as it gets Sometimes I worry that this apartment is more of a studio for work than living. And so, I don't know. I, I compensate by just like leaving the house once in a while. And Marcus had some very small New York City kitchens too. I also did the minimalist living in a basement for oh, yeah. six months or so. Aunt cooked it, did the minimalist on a hot plate, a microwave. And then yeah. I'd go to friends' houses and borrow their kitchens in emergencies. Nice. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Those memories are the best though. Like I, I cooked for my my team. Um when I worked at Food Network, it was like an editorial team of eight or ten. And they all came over to my 250 square foot s- studio apartment. Really, really crappy place. <laughs> but I had decorated it, so it was pretty cute, I guess. And my I had no gas. So I had I made a pot of risotto on us on a burner on a um, hot plate. And I roasted vegetables in a toaster oven and somehow did this like procession of courses because I used to entertain like that back then. And and now I'm just like, now I don't cook like that, even though I have a little more space. But I don't know. I'll, I'll th- I think I'll think fondly on this kitchen um, once I move out of this place. <laughs> I'm, I'm upgrade, but right now, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I like it. I like it a lot. It's, yeah. it's efficient. It's really efficient. I know you're probably really tired of talking about kimchi at this point, but I have to ask you one question. Can you tell me about a traditional kimjang? Because I had never heard about it, and it almost sounds like a kimchi festival. Yeah, isn't that cool? I, I, yeah. I think festival is a great word. Um, I think there are actually festivals um, all over the, the world. But, you know, I think the way I describe it is it's more of an act. It's like an act of making kimchi. And I think traditionally it was with the villages or it was with your whole town or your whole, maybe just your family now. But, you know, my mom and I talk about our solo kimjangs all the time. I, I love kimjangs. It's kind of like making bread. 
very similar in the way that it takes a long time and you have to be around, but not that around. And then you can like take a bath or drink wine or, and it's very, it can be very therapeutic if you like podcasts like I do. I love true crime podcasts. So I'm always listening to something while making kimchi. And what's really lovely about, man, I I really, I really wrote about kimchi this year. Like I, I really went for it many, many times and it was so rewarding to, it's kind of like that kimchi fried rice recipe. It was my, it felt like a graduation or something from Korean cuisine. I was like, not that I'm, you know, I have a lot more to learn, of course, but kimchi was something that I wanted to get better at because my mom's is so good and mine's very different, but I've arrived at my own kind of way of doing it. And um, now I make one with kale and uh, I love adding a little beetroot because that's what my mom does. And I don't know, I just, I cut a lot of corners I think if you want to do the right way, you should follow Mangchi's recipes or my mom's recipe in the book. But, you know, I was trying to figure out how to fit it into my daily life. And so that involves instead of like huge basins of water, which would be catastrophic in this kitchen. I found that you can just use a sheet pan and uh, I don't know, that like works for me. And um, you can lay out the the heads of cabbage. And yeah, I don't know. I uh, another thing about reporting that story, I wrote a cover story for the food section about kimchi and kimjang, and I just love knowing that UNESCO had designated it a cultural heritage, an intangible cultural heritage. Just such, such a like epic term that no one knows. I'm just looking at that page. The representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Isn't that so... Um, so cool. I think it's pretty cool and very like... I don't know. It's for like a food nerd, but I think, or a culture nerd, because what's really, what it's really saying is that there, there's some information that's so valuable that you need to talk, you need to write it down. And I feel like kimchi is like that because a lot of modern cooks don't make their own kimchi. Understandably, my hope is that people start to like recognize that making it yourself is really satisfying because it's my way of clearing out my crisper drawer, to be honest. You know, it's, it's how I, Think about the life cycle of a vegetable. Um, it doesn't have to die in your crisper drawer. You can become a zombie vegetable, which is what I like to call kimchi. It's it's what Chef Chie Kim's said um, for my story. Yeah, she's in Michigan, really talented cook. But yeah, uh, the fact that it's intangible—that's like the main, I think, the important keyword. It's saying that it's not a monument, it's not a building. It's 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 in living people's brains, and those people are gonna you know, people die. So you have to write it down before it's too late. I I like that idea. I think that was the thesis of this book really as well. Write down your family recipes before it's too late. And I I think when I say that people who have lost their parents sometimes feel that it leaves them out of the equation. But I also like to add, always add that when you're trying to write down a family recipe, sometimes it's not even really the actual recipe as we know that, especially moms and grandmas, and they're not very good at like explaining their own recipes because they just do it. But I, so I think what's really important is the taste memory and following your taste memory, as long as you remember what it tastes like, and you do need a certain level of skill in the kitchen, I guess. But I think that's what you're really chasing. And when my mother and I were cooking this book, we, you know, we, we were really chasing the memory mostly, like the platonic ideal of that dish, um, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And so I, I thought that was more, I think it's not, it's not just as simple as like writing down the recipe. It's does it match the memory of it? And usually the memory is clouded with um, you know, rose-tinted glasses, and I, and I think that's okay. Yeah. Like the way your kitchen will be after you leave it. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. Oh, God. When I was with the Times in the 90s, before the minimalists started, I went to some, found some Korean chef to teach me how to make kimchi in Midtown. And I went and did a kimchi story. It'd be interesting to look at that and see how bad it is or not. But that's good. I'll check it out. I remember the guy put, you know, there was dried shrimp, but I think he used fresh oysters too. There was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff in there. It was really good kimchi. And then I was on a kimchi kick for a few years and then I sort of moved on. But yeah. you're making me want to make it. I love the idea of using nearly dead greens to make kimchi. Uh, that bitterness is lovely. It's just, it also permeates the rest of the kimchi. Like you'll have a bite of the cabbage and taste the bitterness of the Tuscan kale. And I don't know. My favorite kimchi are the bitter greens. Last question. We ask everyone this, which is what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, I mean, actually, speaking of which, man, I made the best kimchi jjigae. It, it's, it tastes more like a kimchi soup or like a kimchi kook. So it's a little brothier, so vibrant and bright because I use like really old kimchi that I've, trying to get, I've been trying to get rid of, to be honest. And, but before I made it, because I had no meat or anything, I, which usually imbues the stew with, you know, flavor, I, I sauteed in some, oil um and a little butter i sauteed all this like cilantro i had stems and all and i saw i also did um all the scallions i had. I was like clearing, clearing out my fridge because i'm trying right. to go home for christmas and um man it was so good it, it, ended up, it ended up tasting like tom yum soup which was really appropriate because I, I i was also working on a pineapple fried rice recipe which is going to come out in the magazine soon and that recipe um you know the rice with the 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 coconutty flavor and then the um and the, the stew next to it that's that was like that's what i had it was very delicious sounds great this might be my favorite answer to this question that we've had so far <laughs> that's pretty good especially <laughs> from a guy who just said i love junk food and then he's like yeah, cooked everything in the fridge i do the cook everything in the fridge thing all the time too yeah, it's satisfying i bet everybody who has a lot of ingredients around does that it doesn't always work though Sometimes you make something awful. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you wind up throwing this stuff out anyway. But yeah. Yeah. So this was good. Thanks a million, Eric. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Eric. Good day, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. The recipe we're giving you from Eric's book today is a sheet pan bibimbap. Many of you know that bibimbap is roasted or baked, anyway, cooked rice with with vegetables or vegetables and meat or whatever. There are many different ways to do bibimbap. But uh, I never thought of cooking bibimbap on a sheet pan. Eric actually uses two. And so this is a creative and interesting recipe, sheet pan bibimbap with roasted fall vegetables. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I'll read you the ingredients first. You need two sheet pans and a pound of butternut squash, seeded and cut into bite-sized pieces. That's about four cups. You don't need to peel it. Olive oil, salt, and pepper as needed. 10 ounces of wild mushrooms, especially shiitake and oyster, torn into bite-sized pieces. That'd be about three cups. A medium red onion, halved and thinly sliced. A large red apple, halved, cored, and cut into bite-sized pieces. Four ounces Tuscan kale, lacinato kale, chopped into one-inch pieces. That should be about four cups. Four cups of freshly cooked white rice. That would be short grain. 
two teaspoons of toasted sesame oil, four teaspoons gokujang, that's Korean chili paste, and four large raw egg yolks. Eric says, ones you feel confident about. I like that. So preheat the oven to 450, and on one sheet pan, toss the butternut squash with two tablespoons of olive oil, some salt and pepper. Move that to one half of the pan and add the mushrooms and the onion to the other half of the pan. Toss them with two tablespoons of olive oil and some salt and pepper. And bake that at 450 degrees, as I think I said, until the butternut squash and the mushroom onion mixture are crisp and burnished about 45 minutes. You might want to stir that now and then. Meanwhile, on another sheet pan, arrange the apples and the kale separately, one on each half of the pan. Toss each with a tablespoon of olive oil and some salt and pepper and set that aside. Once the squash and the mushrooms have had their time, 45 minutes or so, take them out of the oven and toss them with a silicone spatula. Return the pan to the oven along with the second pan with the apples and kale. Bake until the kale is wilted slightly and become crisp, and the apple slices are slightly softened, and the squash, onion, and mushrooms are even more caramelized another 15 minutes or so. Divide the rice evenly among four large bowls, and to each bowl add a teaspoon of gokujang and a half teaspoon of sesame oil, then divide the roasted vegetables and apple evenly among the four bowls, keeping them in color-blocked sections. Finish each bowl with a single egg yolk. To eat, you just mix everything together and dig in. That is modern bibimbap, sheet pan bibimbap. Enjoy that. I mean, so interesting. So much fun, as you can tell. And um, we're going to do more like that. And we hope to have Eric back because um, we thought he was a terrific guest. So thank you, Eric, for coming on. You can follow Eric on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Eric June Ho. That's E-R-I-C-J-O-O-N-H-O. His book, Korean American, is out now. Thanks to Kate for joining me and for producing the show. And as usual, to our engineer, Davis Lloyd. Uh, we hope to see you next week when we will have somebody awesome. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 